stain. The sled is just bouncing up and down like as if on rocks. You know, it's super jumbly. So your quads and calves and your ankles, all your bones and everything are just getting completely jarred around. Hey folks, welcome to the Adventure Sports Podcast. I'm your host, Mason. Uh, today's a throwback episode. We're going back a couple years when we talked to Catherine Keith about living above the Arctic Circle. You know, it's the time of year where it might be cold where you are. It's it's cold where I am right now, but that's all relative because uh, uh, it, it's still pretty warm, but it's nothing like the Arctic Circle. And Catherine's lifestyle might be something, you know, as you're sitting behind your desk, you're driving to work, like you're dreaming about, you know, what is it like to be up in some of these extreme places? Well, we're going to hear about it. She is a dog sled racer. She is a triathlete. Uh, she's done a bunch of Ironman uh, triathlons. She's she's just an amazing athlete all around and just tough, tough person living a really cool lifestyle. Uh, she has a book called Epic Solitude, A Story of Survival and a Quest for Meaning in the Far North. I definitely encourage you to check that out. Follow her online. All her links are in the show notes. You know, we, we, we often daydream about this lifestyle or something like it, something different. And we hear from lots of people on the show about living a different way of life. So uh, enjoy wherever you are. Enjoy. Maybe you think to yourself, I never want to do that, live, live in the Arctic Circle. Or maybe that's exactly where you want to be. There's something you can learn from Catherine, and there's going to be uh, some interesting things we talk about. First of all, Enjoy. I want to welcome you to the show, you to the show, Catherine. Welcome. Well, it's good to meet you, Mason. Yeah, and and so we were talking just a second ago. You said you're at the Seattle airport. Uh, are you in the middle of traveling, or are you there for a while? What's going on with that? Oh, just in between stops, the busy time when you're launching a book. Has that been crazy? Quite an adventure. It's been a complete adventure. Uh, I thought writing the book was hard enough, and then all of the work leading into promoting it, that's a whole different bailiwick. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, you know, we're going to talk more about that, and folks have heard some about you through the intro, but I'd love for you to tell us, you know, you know, what, okay, obviously Seattle's not home because you're traveling, but um, where is home from you? Where, where do you live? Well, I grew up in Minnesota, but I live in Kotzebue, Alaska. I have for the past 20 years, and that's northwest Alaska, above the Arctic Circle, uh, on the ocean. So it's really, you can picture the Bering Sea land bridge about right there. No way. Can you paint a picture of what life is like for you up there? You've been there 20 years. Wow. I mean, can you just... Yeah. What, so I, I would say 99.9% of people are just not going to know what that's like. What, what Could you just describe it a little bit? Well, it's very snowy, very windy, but it's the most beautiful, majestic place um, that I've learned to call home. It's uh, living above the Arctic Circle is in honor. The uh, landscape, the sky is something that the people that have been up there, you know, all will just intrinsically understand uh, what that's like. You know, the, the sky is constantly ever-changing. You know, you, you consider most people think about the darkness and what that means to live there, dealing with the darkness. Uh, however, when you think about the, the night sky, well, the night sky is amazing. I mean, you have the stars that are just stunning because there's not much light pollution and then when the uh, sun is not in the sky you the moon actually revolves 24 hours um, a day the full moon 24 hours a day I mean that's glorious so life above the arctic circle is just full of magic um, and uh, uh, it's changing every day so I grew up in Minnesota like as I said so I'm pretty used to the Kind of constant seasons, and that's very much um, it's very much the opposite up there. I can imagine. I can imagine you have to be pretty hardy to to live in a place. I mean, is it a culture shock to you being in Seattle right now? 
Yeah, it always is. <laughs> Anytime <laughs> you leave. But I, I love that. I love the change of going to new places, though. I can appreciate it. Oh, my gosh, that is too cool. I mean, what a place. So can you just kind of you grew up in Minnesota. What, what were you into, you know, adventurous things, sports? Um, what, what was life like there? Did you do a lot of things outside with family? Well, at a very young age, probably as early as seven or eight, I right away knew that I had to be alone um, outside in the woods. I took off with my dad at his cabin and I would run into the woods as soon as I could. I would go find the beaver dam and I would go beyond there and play in the ferns and try to find all the ticks that I could <laughs> and compete against my brother. Like I was, I was that kind of kid that just needed the solitude um, to get out in nature. And I wasn't a child that needed to be around other kids that much. So um, from there growing up, uh, I immediately uh, began to find other sports that allowed me to do those types of activities. Um, not, I played some team sports, but you know, cross-country skiing became um, a passion of mine. And then I soon found rock climbing um, at 14 or 15. And then learning about the adrenaline, uh, the fear, the skill, you know, the combination of those things. Uh, and the joy that that can bring you kind of led me on from there to other things. But yeah, yeah, all of those things kind of paved the way to what the rest of my life was going to be like. Uh, solo trips, you learned early on, you know, you wanted to be solo and you, and you, and you kind of leaned into that and knew that there was something that was important to you. What, what did you begin doing after discovering solo hiking and then also climbing? Was there any big adventure you decided to take on? And what, what did that kind of lead to? Interestingly, it dovetailed nicely with some presentations that I had heard at school. Uh, Will Steger and Ann Bancroft had come into class uh, and talked about their expeditions up to the North Pole. And they're both from Minnesota. So I have the benefit of seeing their presentations and hearing firsthand about their dog mushing expeditions. And right then, it planted the seed of dog mushing and polar Arctic trips. It was kind of imprinted in my soul at that point wow. where I was going to end up going. And how old were you when that, they came and did those talks? I was about 12 years old. Wow. That, yeah. that seed was planted then. How long was it yeah. until you were able to, I don't know, act on that? I eventually came north to Alaska when I was 20. Quite a bit of life happened in between there. I probably would have gone north sooner. But the other thing that both of them have done and I knew about at the time was they gave back strongly to their community. They both are very strong advocates. They were there in the classroom um, giving back to the kids. They contributed to um, environmental issues, climate change. And that also gave back, you know, a strong impression to me as well, just seeing them as strong role models. Um, I still follow them to this day. You know, I want to be them <laughs> still. Wow, I don't know still. how, but one day. <laughs> <laughs> They're still doing amazing things wow. uh, in years. So it's. They're, they're remarkable, but that's so neat to know that there's, you know, you're so impressionable at that age because I don't know. You just don't think things might stick, you know, eight, 10 years later, but that is when seeds are planted. Yeah. And I've heard that theme over and over again from a lot of people, what they've done in life was inspired by people that came into their classroom at young ages. And so, and so then what did you do anything immediately? Like I'm going to, I can't dog mush in Alaska, but I'm going to go, you know, just I don't know, ride my skateboard down the sidewalk or something. I don't know. <laughs> was it was it was there anything in, initially it kind of encouraged you to do? Well, given well, I was a climber, uh, so I, I began just climbing because for me I needed to um, I needed to be alone in the wilderness. That was for me the way to survive. 
<laughs> so anything that I could do to get out in the wilderness and push myself uh, in some capacity, I needed to find a way to create grit in myself. I wanted to have that hardcore feeling of being able to test uh, who I was as a person. Even as a teenager, I knew that that was really important. Um, and to be able to have that spiritual exchange that happens when you're in the wilderness. And I think even at a, even kids kind of know what that is when they're in nature. They uh, have that sense of wonder when they're out there. And um, so in climbing, you can have those experiences. Uh, and I found that and I, I loved it. So I would take off when I was able to drive at 16. I would get in my car and just start driving. Uh, I would head out to the South Dakota Needles in the Devil's Tower, and I would find some people that would climb with me <laughs> and hope that they were good enough players. <laughs> yeah. And then <laughs> it usually worked out okay. Yeah, so I, I did a lot of that hiking and mountain biking. And, and now at some point you decided to to test that that grit and to, to instill more grit and you decided to solo hike the PCT. Is that correct? Was that, was that soon after kind of, you know, maybe getting out of high school? Yep. Yep. And what was that experience like? Yeah. The Pacific Crest Trail, uh, brilliant experience. I was deciding between the Appalachian Trail and the Pacific Crest Trail. And, you know, as you've heard with my propensity towards being alone, Pacific Crest Trail was clearly the more obvious choice for me. And after a year or two of particularly hard times, I decided I kind of need to heal a little bit. So I'm going to go you know, walk on, walk down the trail here. So um, I went, there's a lightweight packer, and it was definitely a hard trip. I uh, went pretty early on in the year and there was a ton of snow and I didn't have any alpine experience. Uh, um, and going through the Sierras, you know, I had my like, titanium ice axe with me and <laughs> my shorts and hiking through and punching through all of the, the deep snow, you know, if I deep snow, punching through and then hitting your knees on the rocks, but you'd still have you know, 4,000 feet left to climb to the oh, passes. Gosh. And I mean, <laughs> a lot of people have been there. And then on the other side of it, you'd have to get across a rushing glacier melt river. And then you get swept away in that because there's so much water. And, you know, <laughs> last looking back at it, because being kind of young, I was not sure if that was normal or not. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, not a very experienced hiker at that point. You know, I probably made a lot of mistakes, but um, the the point was what had needed to happen was trying to recover from a couple years of very big frustrations and going through those uh, mountain passes in the Sierras and you know a lot of physical pain and fatigue and hunger. <laughs> thirst, you know, it allowed me to think about, you know, what was happening out there on the trail. Is it when I'm getting, when I'm wanting to cry so bad, when I'm wanting to quit, when I'm ready to throw my pack over the um, side of the, all the switchbacks, is it because of the trail that's getting me down or is it because of my past? Is it because I'm a weak person? Is it um, the lack of control over things that I couldn't change. You know, what was it that was really breaking me so bad? And all you can do in those situations is just take another step down the trail. You don't have much choice. And that's what began to teach me how you manage life itself, not just that particular hiking trip. All you can do is take a step at a time. And that's a cliche. You just take one step at a time. But that's really what it takes to generate grit is getting yourself through those really bad situations where you're ready to quit. You have no idea how you're going to make it. It seems impossible. 
but you force yourself through it, you breathe through it, and then you just keep going. And through the Pacific Crest Trail, I think that was my first experience. There's many experiences like that along the trail, but it helped to teach me that and help me through many such experiences uh, in the years to come. Is what you were leaving or the, the, the difficulties back home, is that something you talk about or is that something that you like to keep to yourself? Oh, I talk about it in the book. Absolutely. Oh, do you, do you, yep. do you yeah. want to save it for that then? Um, no, it's everyone growing up through childhood has their childhood trauma. And, you know, I had um, gotten, had an early marriage that ended early and, you know, we, we all have, I had my share of early teenage problems that needed to be resolved before I could move ahead in life because otherwise they would have held me back. Um, and they did. Um, however, after getting through the Pacific Crest Trail, you know, I, I could come to terms with that and leave it behind to the best degree possible in a healthy way, come to terms with it, and then move forward um, with my being able to put my best foot forward as I moved ahead with my Alaska trip on my terms, not running away from the past, but moving forward into a great future. Do you prescribe a challenge like this or something physical to anyone basically trying to get through some milestone in life? 100%. I recommend coming up with some form of architectured grit in your life in some capacity. Not everybody can create a physical challenge to create grit. Um, folks that have a full family or a full-time job um, or that may be having a, a parent that they're uh, caring for full-time or uh, someone that has a disability. So. We all have to create our own challenges. And so we can create a scenario that is going to generate grit for us in our own way. So we have to just be strategic about how we do that, that's specific to us. And when we identify what those trigger points are for us, then we can lob that up in the air and grab it <laughs> and put ourselves in a situation to go after it. And and be ready to work for it. You've said grit a few times, and I know that's definitely a theme in the book. Do you think today's society lacks grit? And if so, what would you say to the person that says, well, I don't need grit in my life? I'd be very afraid for the person that says they don't need grit. I do feel that as a society, we are lacking in grit. Somebody might say, well, what is grit? And I say that grit is a combination of strength, determination, courage, heart, and overall just a will to never give up. It's a combination of all of those things. It's important because no matter who we are as individuals, loss is inevitable. We are going to lose a job. We're going to lose a family member, we're going to lose uh, any number of things in our life. And it's going to affect us in a number of ways. At first, it'll hit us with shock. And then people may walk around uh, numb for a period of time. But some people never pull out of that. And they walk around uh, in that state of shock or numbness for a period of time. And some never really fully engage with life again after that. And what's important is that we learn how to fully engage with life again. But you, to do that, you need grit to be able to fight your way back to the surface again and to say yes to life. Because life is amazing. And look at the beauty in it. It's a wonderful, amazing thing that we have. And without grit, the resiliency, 
to tolerate the ups and downs, you might miss it. Mm. Now, can I ask you this? You know, I know you went out to the PCT to, to generate that grid, but at some point you were pushed off the trail. Would, would you say that was a, a compromise of grit or was it just, you know, obviously there are times where you have to stop something for your own health or for the health of others. And, and was this one of those times for you? And how, how do you process that looking back at it now? I would say it was serendipity in a sense. It was because I did have Giardia it was very unfortunate that I had to leave the trail and I needed to make money because I was very poor. I would be leaving myself uh, $10 in the drop boxes ahead of time to try to get myself some food at the post offices and stuff. That wasn't quite enough to get the medication and to see the doctor. Right, right. So I right. thought that like, oh. Right. So to make a long story short, I heard about Sundance. Somebody had a connection to, that I could go down to Arizona and um, witness and be a part of a Sundance down there, which to me was this very important spiritual awakening that was a higher priority than finishing the trail. So I made a conscious decision to detour down there. And ultimately it, it saved my life, which is totally another story. So I feel it's important to be flexible on your adventures or these quests when needed. Hmm. It's almost like you transferred your grid from one thing to another. Like, you know, I can't continue on the trail, but I, I, I got to make it in life. I got to get healthy again, first of all, and I've got to make money. And obviously those pursuits take a lot of grit as well. So Maybe you just were moving on from the PCT to another form, another challenge, really. Yeah, yes. And plus, having Giardia for about 100 miles on the trail <laughs> that generated at least a thousand grit points because I was so <laughs> sick. <laughs> for a very sounds, long time. Sounds it awful. Was, it was horrendous. <laughs> I felt satisfied. <laughs> you, you, uh, yeah, you were getting accelerated grip points at that point. Um, yep. <laughs> you earned the rest of those miles. That's for sure. So, you know, you, you say you went down to a Sundance. What, what, what was that? What is that? I, I'm not sure familiar with that. Um, it's a, uh, American, uh, Indian ceremony from the Plains Indians. And you'll have to read the book to hear more about that story. Okay. All right. Very cool. So I, yeah, I'm excited. And I know I said, I, I have the book and I've definitely started, but I wasn't able to finish by the time we, um, got, got into this episode, but, um, I'd love to know, you know, from, from there, how, wh where did you go then? I, I know at some point you went up to Alaska. How, how did, how did that come about? How did Alaska come about? Was it that search for solitude? Yeah, it, absolutely was. It was time to go north. It just couldn't be denied anymore. I scrounged up $500 to purchase the short bus, which was converted into an ice cream truck. It had Pokemon Perfect. stickers on the sides of it. And when I hit the horn on the steering wheel, it played music. It was excellent. <laughs> okay. That's <laughs> so, awesome. Drove up there, got eight miles a gallon, and drove to Seward, Alaska, where I was able to find a job. Uh, at first, I led kayak tours in Resurrection Bay. Very gorgeous spot for anybody that hasn't been there. Put it on your bucket list. And after that job was finished, I went up to Godwin Glacier, which is also in Seward. And that's where I learned my first. Um, experience exactly how to run dogs exactly how to run dogs so what was what what did, what is that something you were always keeping in the back of your mind since that that talk that you had at 12 years old or that you were had at your school and was this finally an opportunity was that the ultimate goal or did you just kind of see the opportunity and say oh yeah i remember that talk i'd love to continue to try to pursue this i remember the talk and as I, drew, uh, as I drove up north, 
to Alaska, I was working out how I could find a way to run dogs and make it work to run the Iditarod. And it was a matter of figuring out where to get a job. Typically, getting a job as a handler is a non-paid position. The problem was I didn't have much money to begin with. As I drove into Seward, I was running on fumes. So I'm going <laughs> to, I really didn't have any options. I had to find some kind of paying work before I could do anything else. So as I worked on Godwin Glacier, I was able to learn the basics about dog mushing. But from there, I could, I uh, was looking for other work and found a posting in Seward for a job up north in Kotzebue from an Iditarod dog musher named Ed Eaton. And they were looking for a dog handler for the winter to go up there. And for the experience, you live up there. They provide you room and board and give you an airline ticket. And in exchange for that, you learn everything. It was amazing. Everything, I went up there and learned everything about running dogs, how to feed them, how to train them. I learned about life in the bush, all of the chores, water, wood, you name it. And you, you enjoyed that. That was fun to you. Oh, yeah. It was a dream come true. That, That's awesome. What I had wanted you know, back at the 12-year-old me. So I, I guess a couple dozen dogs don't really interfere with your sense of solitude. Dogs are not a part of the equation. <laughs> dogs are not. Just just some humans then, huh? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, uh, yeah, I, 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 I understand. I definitely understand. We, we have a few dogs and uh, I'd never mind their company. Let's put it that way. But there are definitely plenty of people who I can only spend a little, you know, certain amount of time with. <laughs> <laughs> Gosh, from there, and that and that was up where you're living now. That was up in Kutzebue? Yep, yep. That's how I made it up there. After that season, what what, what kind of kept you up there? Was another did another opportunity pop up and, and obviously you enjoyed the lifestyle. What what was that like? I stayed up there uh, now that I've been there for twenty years and a lot of life happened between then and now. After I left the Eatons, I met and uh, married my husband, who I had lost, and we had two kids. My daughter, Amelia, is now 16. And our life was very full. The adventure sports side of things had lessened, but we did have many more adventures during those days, which were crazy because we would be searching for mammoth ivory all over um, to do sound and uh, on the ocean looking for you know full mammoth tusks we'd be um, boating all over the arctic ocean uh, beach combing building our log cabin i mean tons of things that you know every day you would wake up and just be ready to explore the backyard which you know was hundreds of miles full of soft solitude um, so it was amazing also full of lots of tragedy and very heart-wrenching stuff. But after, after those years, uh, I went on then to begin triathlons. And from there, the entry into Iditarod and Yukon Quest. Wow. It, can I ask you this? I know you have kind of a, a, a range of skills and I, I'll be honest, like every... It's almost like every point you bring up is just an episode in itself. Just like obviously life up there could we could just talk about that forever. You know, raising children in such a remote place, what that's like, because so few listeners are going to ever have this. Unfortunately, ever going to have this experience firsthand. And but we're all so curious about what life up there is really like. But you know, so so you were dog sledding, but then it led into to Iron Man. But you know, did you did you want to say something? I'm sorry. Uh, no, I was just thinking about uh, what it's like out there raising at camp, raising a, a child. <laughs> you say at camp, so, what, what is that? Is that, was that home? Was home more of like a, a camp setting? Yeah, we consider them camps. Um, people call them cabins like in the Northern States or 
uh, people in rural Alaska call them camps. Basically, it's a log cabin. So we have a, a vertical log cabin. And uh, it's 15, 18 miles away from Katsudu. You get there only by snow machine or by boat. So it's very isolated. I mean, what are some of the challenges slash opportunities of raising a family somewhere that remote? What, what have you experienced? Let's take a quick message break and hear from the folks that help make this show possible. Hey, Kurt. Hey, Mason. If you don't know, Kurt is the former host of Adventure Sports Podcast. Kurt, I heard you had a little story for us. Okay, true story. A couple of years ago, I decided it was finally time to get just the right ski for me. But ski technology changes so quickly, and I really didn't know what I needed, so I just went to Powder 7, and I told them my skier ability, how I wanted to ski to perform in the pow and on the corduroy and in the bumps, and they pointed at a ski in the wall and said, I think this is the one for you. Of course, they showed me several others and told me how they would differ, but in the end, they said, but based on what you said, this is probably the one. I have never had as much fun on a ski as the one that they recommended for me. So if you're going to buy new skis... Why not buy the right ones for you? And to do that, go to Powder 7. They really know what they're talking about. And I also wanted to add, they have pretty much perfected the art of buying skis online too. So even if you're not in the area, they have a very robust website, extremely helpful. And the cool thing too, they do sell a lot of used demo skis. So I know we on the show are always looking for deals. Um, That's a great way to save a little money if a budget's tight right now. So definitely check out Powder 7 by going to powder7.com. Again, that's powder7.com. I am someone that's not quite smart enough or going to take the time to figure out all the things that my body needs nutritionally. Um, And so I kind of like a a cheat code of, of sorts, almost something that can just get me what I need without me having to think about it. And that's why I'm actually very excited to be talking about Athletic Greens, because they have a daily powder that you can mix with water called AG1 that has 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, whole food source superfoods, probiotics, and adaptogens to help you start your day. I just do it early in the day, get it done with, and it makes you just feel more accomplished. I feel better. I have more energy. And no matter if you're on a special diet like keto, vegan, dairy-free, gluten-free, whatever— It doesn't interfere with any of that. Athletic Greens has figured it out because you could not afford this trying to put those 75 ingredients together yourself. They make it even easier by throwing in a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free Athletic Green AG1 travel packs with your first purchase. All you got to do is go to athleticgreens.com slash ASP. Again, that's athleticgreens.com slash ASP to take ownership over your health, pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. That is plenty of that for now. Let's get back into the episode. Well, you mentioned raising a child. So when and it was just myself and my daughter, Amelia, when she was 10 months old, you can consider something like keeping the house warm. Uh, which we all like to have a warm house. Yeah, yeah. But I'd have to get fuel from town, which was 15 miles away, and we'd have to pay $8 a gallon for it. So it wasn't cheap. And then we'd have to get it in a big 50-gallon drum and then put it on a big sled and then bring that back to camp. (laughs) We have to pump fuel into the snow machine, warm up the snow machine, And because I couldn't ever pull start it, I'd have to get a generator started so I could put a hairdryer on, power the hairdryer, and then put the hairdryer on the carburetors of the snow machine. (laughs) Take Put Amelia on my back under my parka, drive to the woodlot eight miles away, get a chainsaw, cut down the trees, (laughs) chainsaw the woods, chop the wood for the wood stove once I got back and then carry it all in a few pieces at a time into the wood stove. And then the whole time, like she's, she's on my back and I'm scared nonstop because she's 10 months old. So, you know, it's kind of ridiculous. You wonder like, Oh, what, why are we doing this? And then you turn around and then you look at beautiful, brilliant sun for 
you know, heard a caribou going by. There's moments and you understand why, why you're out there. But yeah, it's stunning. You know, a lot of people are going to ask why, why would you do that? But you know, you just gave the reasons why, and I'm sure that was just an immense reward. Uh, can I ask you this? I know I'm just out of curiosity. You know, I've got an eight month old and the, and the guilt of not living near parents just, uh, you know, grabs hold of me every day. What was that like for you with, with other family or extended family? Was there pressure to be somewhere more accessible? Yeah, always. I don't think it was difficult to, to deal with the pressure other than I miss having them around and vice versa. It's without any family in Alaska, any close, you know, any close to, yeah, without any family, it's, it could be lonely in that way. But again, being that lone wolf, <laughs> you manage. <laughs> wow. And so that sense of solitude and that desire for adventure has been enough to, to keep you out there long-term, obviously 20 years. Yeah. Wow. That's, uh, that's incredible. And so for Amelia growing up in that, is this just kind of normal life to her? She probably doesn't know anything different, huh? Yeah. Yeah. She loves it out there. And now that she's um, older and uh, going to school and what, busy herself we go out there primarily uh, in the summers we don't live out there um so our life has since been uh, more busy and kind of uh, taken a different direction so we're not at the subsistence camp anymore it's more of a summer camp so okay wow and so you know at some point you know you got really interested in doing doing uh some training for some Ironman competitions. How, how did that come about being up there in Alaska? Did you, did you see an ad or just, just did someone else tell you a story about that? And you're like, I want to do that at some point. How did that come about? Actually, that was kind of what it was. I was <laughs> going back to the university to finish my degree, got my degree in renewable energy engineering. And, and where was this? What university? This is in Fairbanks. Oh yeah. And I needed to do something. So I wasn't, I needed to be training for something. And I wasn't sure what, you know, I was running. And I like those big lofty goals to work towards. I think they're important to have them. And I couldn't think of what I'm Marathon, well, yeah, okay, that wasn't. But I actually wasn't aware that Ironman's existed. So I set a goal for a triathlon but I didn't have any of the gear. I didn't have anything. So I started training for this triathlon and then I borrowed people's bikes. <laughs> then I figured that there was this Ironman thing. <laughs> and wow, I'm going to do that. <laughs> so that got me going. And then I was, before I even did one, I was hooked. So uh, I, I participated in uh, Ironmans for about eight, years and where was your first one what was it up in alaska it was silveran in uh henderson what was that experience i mean was it everything you thought it was going to be was it harder i mean what, what was that like it was better it was it, it was, was everything i hoped for you just you just love you're just a glutton for punishment aren't you, you yes, just love. yes <laughs> it was probably a, a piece of cake compared to normal life <laughs> oh yeah it was it was great it was intense it was also short duration which is something that i hadn't done much of was done more like longer term endurance stuff yeah it was a lot of fun and you said you did that for eight years mm -hmm. how many you did how many uh did you do eight overall or i've done six overall and then yeah, about the same or a few more halves. Oh, wow. That's fantastic. That's so cool. And now at some point, the idea to do the Iditarod came up. Were you mushing dogs all this time or did you have to get back into it again? Uh, I was mushing dogs on and off. I, I didn't when I was in Fairbanks uh, taking classes or working. But when I came back to Kotzebue uh, for work, uh, I did start running again. And at that point, um, as you know, there's qualifiers to compete for the Iditarod. 
And so I could start the process of getting towards my rookie year, which was in 2014. And I, I started up until for 2014, I tried to compete in both Ironman and I did a run. I was training 40 hours a week for Ironmans and wanted to be able to do both because I wasn't willing to give up one just to do the other. I felt like if I could race, I did a rod in March, I should be able to compete in an Ironman in August or November. But with uh, I did a rod, you have to be so committed and train your dogs really all year long. And the training load that you end up putting on your legs for both, it ended up not being that sustainable. It was worth a shot. What is some of the physical training for the Iditarod? So on your body, what ends up happening in the summer, for example, where we live in Kotzebue, you're up on the tundra training. So you're on this big old wooden sled and your legs are standing on runners, but you're up and down on these tussocks, which are, you know, what the tundra is. It's these big knobs of grass and dirt. So your sled is bouncing up and down on these tussocks and you're trying to stay the sled is just bouncing up and down like as if on rocks, you know, it's super jumbly. So your quads and calves and your ankles, all your bones and everything are just getting completely jarred around and you're out there for six hours. And even when you're out on snow and, and you're doing a regular training run, that might be. 50 miles and you're outside for eight hours or something. You're still hooking up dogs uh, on both sides for maybe two hours. And then you're feeding them both sides of that. So you end up working 12 hour days and then to go get your bike in for four hours after that, not to mention working and spending time with your daughter. There's ends up being kind of like things just start not being able to add up. Yeah, even some even someone like you gets to the point where there's just too many things on the plate to where it's like, okay, something has to go. And I, and I'm sure the 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 benefit of the solitude of of the Iditarod is what eventually kind of won out because as as fun as as fun as Ironmans are, they're with a lot of other people and I know yep. I know you don't like that. <laughs> Plus, you don't have the wilderness aspect. Exactly. It's all kind of a, an organized, kind of structured thing with, with you know, guiding, you know, just, you know what I'm saying. Yeah. You have the grit. You have the salt. I mean, yeah, it, it has a one aspect, but not the others. But I, I loved it for that. <laughs> Well, I know that you're not, <laughs> I know that, you know, um, doing adventures is not something you're ever shy to back down on. And I know that you have a, a new project popping up. Do you mind mentioning a little bit about that and what that's going to look like? Absolutely. All right. So I'm t- taking a break for the next two years to, uh, of racing to start climbing the seven summits. Uh, very much looking forward to this. I've been working up to it for the past couple of years. I've been taking the usual classes, um, climbing on Mount Banker, Mount Rainier, a couple mountains here in Alaska. And I'll be climbing, um, attempting a climb on Mount Elbrus in July and Kili in August and a Rainier trip uh, in there somewhere. But uh, it's you keep me. You keep hearing me saying it's a dream of mine, but I do have a lot of dreams. So I hope you can't fault me for that. But uh, it has been a dream of mine, and I'm there. I'll be climbing with my camel, and his organization is very qualified, and I feel confident to be working with a great group. That's awesome. Did you know we had my camel on the show a few months ago? I just found that out and listened to the podcast and I'm even more enthusiastic. Yeah. That guy is a complete professional. Yeah. I was thinking if I ever want to do one of these, he is absolutely the person I'm getting a hold of. Yeah. So what, what about the seven summits? Is it just the obvious that the, you know, the biggest challenges on each continent is why you want to do it? And 
you know, if not, what, what is it for you? Because it, you will have to go with a guide and, and it will be obviously wilderness experience, but it is, you know, it is on a lot of people's list to, to complete something like that. For me, I wanted to climb the second highest, not the actual highest. I've read more about the interesting technical aspects of the second highest. However, my abilities won't warrant the, or won't allow me yet to climb those. So at this point, I'm going to begin climbing the seven summits. It's the alpine environment itself that I, I hunger for. Um, getting to the seven continents and traveling is something I hunger for. I love being in the mountains. And despite the fact that I'll be there with the team of other people, I still feel I'll have close enough to the solitude um, that I need in order to feel that satisfaction and have also that spiritual feeling um, that's so important when out on any kind of expedition. So I'll be happy anytime I can get out on a mountain. Here in Alaska, we have a lot of 5,000 foot peaks. And they're actual peaks. They're not hills just because it's 5,000 feet. They're, they're beautiful. And to be out on one of them is a true treasure. So the seven summits, though, are, are also just a beginning of a, a whole quest that I think will open doors to many other climbing experiences that I look forward to. Oh, that's absolutely fantastic. And now, um, when this podcast release, your, your book will be coming out the day after. Can you tell, you know, listeners what, what to expect with the book, why they should go out and get the book? And, uh, I know it's probably a lot of what we covered in the episode, but is it, what, what, what can they look forward to with that? The book has something for everyone and I hope everyone does pick it up because it'll be worth it. I promise the story is about survival and it's a quest for meaning in the far north. Is the, thing. the way it's written is it oscillates between epic adventures of the sort that we've talked about today and raw life, not a lot of which we did not talk about. What I consider an adventure memoir, and it's for a mature audience of men and women, not necessarily for you know younger uh, folks. So there's a lot of ponderings over mysteries we face in life in the sense that I really want folks to question why it is, how it is that we're looking at our own life. So I talk a lot. I've got great stories in there, of course, about the Iditarod, the quest, the Pacific Crest Trail. You know, those are in there. We got to have them in there for stories. But really, it's a progression of how do we survive when we're hit with the most horrifying loss we can have in our life? And how do we survive? How do we manage that? Because that's some things in life are so horrifying. How do we get beyond that? And there is a way is what I'm telling you. We can get through it. But better yet, we can learn to live again. We can actually say yes to life. And then we can make something great again. And you might not be the same as who you were before, um, but you can redefine yourself and you can still see the beauty in life. And that's what the book is about. So I really encourage folks to consider picking it up. Uh, I'm very humble. I'm not, a, I'm not an author. I've never really written a book before, so I can't promise you it's going to be this eloquent text, but I do hope you. <laughs> oh, that's great. I do hope you give me a pass on that. <laughs> well, if they're listeners of this show, that they're not used to uh, uh, a high degree of professionalism. Let's put it that way. <laughs> no, it's okay, it's it's very humble. It's a humble show. We we don't we don't strive for you know clean crisp pr production or, or or style. It's really just conversations between people about adventure and about what you know the meaning of life and the meaning of, of what it means to get out there in the wilderness and solitude and uh, why we love it so much and so it's it's 
yeah, it can't be any more um, perfect in that style for, for our listeners. So I, I really encourage them to get out there and check it out. And by the way, it's called Epic Epic Solitude. And uh, where we'll be able, uh, where, blah, 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 sorry, I'm mixing up my words. Where will folks be able to find it? So it'll be all over your um, regular um, venues, including uh, Indie Bound, which is where your independent bookstores well, very cool, Catherine. So, you know, is, is there any other projects or any other things coming up for you or anything else you'd like to share with listeners before, uh, before closing out the interview? I guess the last thing I'd like to share is that um, soon after the book comes out, I'll be launching uh, Find Wilderness, Find Wellness workshops. What I'm combining is um, it'll be three-day workshops to help people create a package to develop grit while also finding time in nature. There's been a lot of studies coming out over the past five or 10 years about exactly why it's important to spend time in nature. Uh, Exactly 120 minutes is what you need to spend time in nature with the greatest benefits being 200 to 300 minutes in nature. And when you do that, this is per, how, how long of a time? Oh, per week. Per week. Thank you. Okay. It improves your cortisol, your blood pressure, your sympathetic and parasympathetic oh, uh, no nervous doubt. system. And we know all this uh, intuitively, but to have the science start to narrow down exactly what and why, I think will really help to create a program for people to improve what they want. Uh, Another example is folks that spend four days in nature away from digital devices. Uh, After four days, creativity goes up by 50%. So having a retreat or a workshop for three or four days, you can have some pretty remarkable results, both for health, creativity. So find wilderness, find wellness. I want to come up with workshops that can really help people both formulate a plan that can increase opportunities for great in their life and also understand how better to find a way to have access to nature in their lives to improve wellness physically and mentally. So uh, I'd love to, if anybody wants to talk about it more, look me up. Wonderful. And they, I'm sure they can also find that uh, at your website, correct? Which is yeah. um, katherinekeith.com. And I, that'll be in the show notes as well. Catherine Keith, both with a K. All right. Well, Catherine, I, I really, really appreciate you being on the show and, and sharing a little bit, just, you know, skimming the surface of life, of what your your adventurous life has entailed. I'm very excited to get more into the book and to uh, just be able to learn about you and, and what you've done and what you're planning to do. Excellent. Thanks, Mason. Well, have a great one and we'll, we'll talk soon. All right. Thank okay. you so much. Bye. First of all, Thank you so much for listening. It means the world to us that you choose to listen to this show. If you'd like to help us further, you can leave a review on iTunes, share us with your friends, your family. It goes a long way to grow in the show. You can also support us financially through patreon.com slash adventure sports podcast. Link is in the show notes. And also, if you have an idea of who could be a good guest for the show, we're always looking for people to tell their story uh, about the outdoors or adventure. So if you know someone, please reach out. Email us at info at adventuresportspodcast.com. And until then, get out there and have some fun.